0: and welcome to Pave Insight. I'm Pascal, and this week we're gonna do something slightly different. For those joining for the first time, we typically discuss the week's most significant stories and their impact on the financial markets. But this week we'll be asking Peter about his fascinating career and how it led him to Pave. Also, at the end of the show, we'll talk about how you can sign up for a chance to get on a Zoom call with Peter, where you can ask any questions you may have about finance, entrepreneurship, life, or anything else. Without further ado, let's jump into it. How did you get into finance?
1: it's so interesting my mother got me involved I had never I was applying to colleges I was actually looking at Amherst to be an English or history major Um, I liked everything in high school but uh, uh, she used to listen to business radio all the time and she said what about Wharton I said what's a Wharton (laughs) (laughs) and um, I knew knew about Penn but I didn't know about Wharton so I looked into it and um, it really interested me and then when I went on campus I fell in love with the, the whole energy of the of the campus so ended, I ended up going there and had a great time and back then the the job that everybody wanted was investment banking mm-hmm. and consulting as well but I, so I, it hasn't I, changed yeah exactly. <laughs> we just added tech <laughs> and to do that you really had to have an MBA and I was able to go straight through because of my grades and um uh I so was you did your MBA at Wharton uh, yeah well. straight through yeah. yeah yeah undergrad and grad and the funny thing is I mean uh not to uh, encroach upon Steve Jobs' territory uh, because I don't really think that I, I belong in the same sentence with him, but the classes that I took at uh, at Wharton, my my girlfriend through college was uh, was an English major and we took a lot of film classes and art history classes mm-hmm. together. And if I had to say the things that really helped me the most was kind of looking through a storyline, trying to look at, at different patterns mm-hmm. across different paintings and, mm-hmm. and movies and and, and, and scenes and that kind of helped form my, my view of the world. I mean, the, the underlying work at Wharton was helpful, but the, the longest lasting lessons were from art history and, and, uh, and film. So after you finished up your MBA at Wharton, what was your first job? I mean, everybody wanted to be an investment banker. So I applied to three places, Drexel, Goldman, and, and Lehman. And two uh, of those don't exist anymore. Exactly. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> um, and I had a friend who was actually going to working at Lehman, and I took a lot of. I always bit off more than I could chew in school, so I was very late on a fifty-page paper that was due the next day. And back then we had the manual uh, manual typewriters, right? <laughs> so it was a Saturday night. My friend called me. He goes, what's going on? I said, I'm panicking. And uh, he told me to get on a on an Amtrak, which I did, and went to uh, to Lehman, and they had a, the. Uh, Basically, it was the 1980s equivalent of a, of a secretarial pool. Uh, they were on the word processors, and it just so happened that it was located on the trading floor. Mm. And so I walked through this enormous room with all these red chairs and all these monitors, and mm-hmm. I said, what is this? And he goes, oh, this is the trading floor. I said, what's that? And he goes... <laughs> <laughs> so I looked into it, and uh, I, I canceled all the all the interviews for investment banking, or the three of them, and I flipped it over to the trading. Okay, Because it was very quantitative. Uh, it was you had to be kind of quick on your feet. It was less relationship-oriented and um, in fact even within the trading what I did was I went to fixed income as opposed to equities because okay. uh, it was much more quantitative at that time. Mm-hmm.
0: And you worked at Lehman your, for the entirety of your first portion of your career or you hopped around a bit? What yep. was
1: that like? I ended up um, really hitting it off with the with the, um, the partner in charge of governments. Mm-hmm. He was quite a character. Uh, his name was uh, Peregrine Moncrief.
0: And, um, That's quite the name. Yeah,
1: yeah, he was a Scottish royalty, I think. He was. He used to go out in kilts on Saturday nights. It, was really, it worked well because he used to spin around on the dance floor. He used to like, put his kilt over his knee. Um, he, was, he was something else. He used to call him Perry. And uh, uh, he allowed me to pretty much do whatever I wanted. And right. when, when I was there, though, uh, there was something that on the trading desk, uh, they said you know there was this new product called fixed income options, and no one knew what to do with them. And I was the only one of my entering class of about 50 that actually could understand stochastic equations and the option model. And I'd done modeling at Wharton. Sure. And uh, so I, had hi- I hired three people that I used to work with and uh, started a group. And it became, ended up becoming the, the trading desk. Mm-hmm. So I found myself you know, running a desk at, at 23. Right. It was an incredible opportunity. Wow, yeah. And you know now the firms are so much bigger and so bureaucratic that uh, you couldn't do that. In fact, that was the first time that they were doing CMOS and collateralized mortgage obligations, where they're all, all the same... stuff in the Big Short. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All the stuff that got people in trouble. It just right. was starting as I was as I was. Wow. Yeah. Getting there. And that was eighty two. Eighty three is when I joined. Yeah. 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 That was fun. It was a lot of fun. The head mortgage trader ended up leaving because he made so much money, but he got paid a dollar less than the CEO. (laughs) He went across the street, cashed a four million dollar check, which was a lot now, but a a lot back then. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then went to Donaldson, Lovkin, and Jenrette. And what was cool there is that he wanted to go to L.A. and my college girlfriend, was in LA and I always like Los Angeles anyway, so I ended up going out there and that following was, him out there. Following basically. him out there, yeah. Yeah. we started we started a desk out there. He was trading there. I'd go back and forth, which was interesting because he he virtually bankrupted the company on a trade, <laughs> <laughs> which made the trips going back to New York not so much fun. Right, yeah. <laughs> but it was fun because you know Lehman was a partnership, but DLJ was more of a corporation. So I found myself at 25 in the you know steering committee executive meetings with right. the heads of investment banking and. You know, All different the traditions yeah. Which was phenomenal experience, yeah, mm-hmm. just great. And um, and then I ended up. I spent six years doing fixed income options, mm-hmm. and then I ended up getting hired uh, to by, by someone because I had a history of being more of an entrepreneur. Sure. Building businesses. Within right? businesses, right? <clears throat> because it was a new product, so I not yeah. only had to trade, I had to train the salespeople in terms mm-hmm. of what they had to do, and then I also had to talk to to clients. It gave me a real appreciation of education within the products, because usually it's just like, you know, the clients know more than you do, at least as much, because they've been doing it for 30 years. This was a brand new, brand new market. It was great. And then I ended up going into um, currency options, so I sort of trade fixed income and then currencies, and then I ended up going to Hong Kong Shanghai Bank for four years to take over kind of a fledgling desk, uh, currency option desk. So I ended up trading commodities, currencies, uh, fixed income, uh, futures and options around the globe and, mm-hmm. and equity index options and futures mm-hmm. around the globe. It was great. And then I ended up then moving over to the uh, the hedge fund side.
0: Right. So that was actually my next question, which is okay. how how did you move from that bank trading world into hedge funds?
1: Yeah, it's a lot different, actually. The prop trading was a lot more like hedge fund trading, though. So So I had a lot of experience in it. And I gave a speech uh, somewhere, that, and some brokers who were working for a guy called Steve Cohen, mm-hmm. who was a lot less well known back then. Sure. And they said that he's looking for a macro trader, and they liked the fact that I was talking about trading using higher frequency information, because mm-hmm. most macro traders are looking at very long term, one year sure, trades. And sure. Steve back then was flipping stocks like he traded long IBM, short IBM, long IBM in one day. At that point, so we hit it off really well, and I started to trade. Uh, I was his first macro trader at SAC.
0: Tell me a little bit more about that experience, what, what was that like, what did you take away from it?
1: Oh, it was, it was fantastic, I mean, he, uh, it was a very loose atmosphere, uh, Steve was an amazing trader, extraordinary actually, and he was purely stocks, so what I would try mm-hmm. to do is integrate what I knew about macro, and then try to figure out how it would apply to individual stocks, which is not sure. a typical macro view, you're thinking about monetary policy across all the different countries, mm-hmm. what country's growing faster than expectations how to trade the currency, the stocks, and the bonds. And those things are long-term trends. Those things don't change uh, quickly. He gave me a real appreciation of being able to trade in and out of trends because he said people will actually over-discount things. People think linearly, so they think things are gonna go on forever. And sometimes people pile into trades and that's the time when you have to look for, even though you might be right philosophically, you could be wrong from a trading standpoint.
0: So then how did that experience take you into the desire to start your own fund?
1: The arc of my entire career was I'd started businesses, and I'd been at SAC over a span of nine years. I had wanted to try to do something more entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. and SAC was really just a stock shop, Right. and it was, it was a great place. But he eventually started to do more macro a couple of years after I left, but I wanted to just see what I could do. Uh, to kind of take that whole entrepreneurial spirit and just see if I could run something on my own. I met a guy who was actually the youngest casino owner ever, this (laughs) guy by the name of Tim Poster. Uh, I met him actually through the leisure analyst at at SAC. We hit it off well, and I ended up starting to trade a small account for him. So then I ended up just wanting to expand on on that, and I I thought it was exciting to trade for clients Mm -hmm. and see if I could help them make money. Sure.
0: So yeah, what was that that experience of starting your own fund like? I mean, how did the how did it work at the beginning? How did you go about establishing everything?
1: Hedge funds are more than just trading. I mean, it's it's an entire business. It's a simple business when you think about it, but you have to know who the right service providers are, like right. you know, who the right lawyers are, mm-hmm. the best administrators, things of that sort. So I kind of used that experience on this small strategy at first to kind of get the right people around me, sure. uh, because I was going to be at that point I was a one man shop. So for me to run a business I had to know who to rely on mm-hmm. and, and so I, I took it slowly in that small strategy and then when I wanted to go bigger I ended up partnering with someone else and, and going for something a little bit bigger a little bit more established. Take
0: me through that process of kind of how you went about growing
1: your fund. So what I wanted to try to do is replicate what I did with Steve that is to look at the macro world and trends and then create a portfolio of stocks Right. So, there was someone that I hired into to SAC. He was the first undergraduate ever to get get hired, and we ended up starting out with twelve million dollars to trade. I couldn't take my old clients because we wanted, they were all high net worth people, and we wanted to have institutions mm-hmm. so, so we could we could grow more. And the problem was for me to be able to do my job, I'm looking across all ten sectors in in in, in stocks. So I'm looking at retail, you know, consumer discretionary. What's going on with the consumer? banks, what's happening with interest rates mm-hmm. and, and loan demand. So basically applying economic techniques to each sector and say, okay, I like banks, I don't like consumer discretionary, and then I'd have my partner take the stocks. To do that, you needed to have at least 10 separate analysts. Right. At the time, given the economics in New York, you'd have to start with 100, 200 million to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So my partner went to high school in Pakistan and had brutes in Pakistan. And we ended up, uh, thanks to him... Recruiting 16 people in Pakistan, mm. and we actually had to train them from scratch. I mean, they were right. they were you know, they went to business school, I and mean, a lot of them had CFAs, which is a, a financial certification. Right. But you know, they had no judgment, no knowledge, no no mentorship. So we literally took six months to train them. And then what I would do is I would set the view in terms of how aggressive we were going to be from, on the long side or short side, mm-hmm. based off my view of the economy mm-hmm. and the markets, and pick the sectors to be long and short. And he would then go work with his, these different analysts and say, okay, what are the, what are the worst housing stocks? Because this is back in, in, we started out in 2007, right, so right. it was negative on the housing market, negative on the banks, positive on energy, positive on, on China-related names, things like that. So he would pick the best of what I liked and the worst of what I hated. <laughs> and it worked out really well. Right. Um, in fact, we, were, we beat the S&P by 70% over... Our first ten quarters, wow, we started out at twelve million we got to at the end of the year, we were at one hundred and fifty five million mm-hmm. and then, in eight, just about when things got bad, which is right. the second half of 08, we were running close to three hundred million and because it was a new market, it wasn 't like I had fidelity and pimco coming in, I had to actually build my clientele, mm-hmm. so I was very, very tied to them, and I always thought of my clients as partners, mm-hmm. so where most funds were gating where if they they can end up stopping redemptions right.
0: So you can't pull money out of the fund even if you want to. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I, I made the fund as liquid as possible. Right. Usually it's like a three month notice period where mm-hmm. they tell you we want to take the money out, but people keep the money in for three more months because they can earn more fees. Sure. I said as soon as I heard, as soon as I know that month, we sometimes liquidated the entire portfolio in half an hour. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So so we were very nimble because I needed that because I would, that's the way I wanted to trade right. the ideas. Right. So because we were you know trying to put our clients first. It hurt us because they were starting to liquidate from us because they could, just because their clients, their ultimate clients, wanted their money back. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but some. So they needed to redeem somehow. So we kept on getting new money in, but other money out. So Mm -hmm. we were pretty much at three hundred, close to three hundred, for the next six seven months. Right. And then people were saying, "Look, we can't do due diligence in Pakistan." And actually, we're kind of glad that was true because the office would go down and sometimes three times a day in terms of electricity we had a, a generator the size of a bus outside <laughs> i mean it was crazy sometimes i'd call up and i'd hear gunshots outside and uh, some people couldn't go to work because there was right, shooting at the horse.. outside yeah. Jeez, yeah it was typical i had a great time there though i really enjoyed going there and the people there were fantastic it was a great great experience but a lot of people were saying they could invest with us if we had a new york office so my partner moved to new york and it ended up where the business dynamic changed. And because I really had the relationship with the clients, I felt responsible for them. And I couldn't, in good faith, tell them that things were the same. We didn't have the same quality mm-hmm. that I thought we could deliver. And I ended up in 2010, liquidating the fund, even though we were up for the year, uh, I, just, I just liquidated the fund and dissolved it because we were 50-50 partners and we just went our separate ways.
0: And what would you say were the, I mean that was obviously your first time ever fully on your own, right? You had done right. entrepreneurial type ventures within other organizations throughout right. your life, but that was your first time truly building something for yourself, and I imagine closing it must have been quite difficult, so what were some of the key learnings that you took away from that process?
1: Yeah, yeah the thing that really really hurt the most it wasn't an ego issue. it was that we had a hundred and fifty people working for us in Pakistan, mm-hmm. and we were making a real difference. I mean it was great, and uh, I really felt like in my small one small way, I was making a little bit of an inroad. Uh, I had great relationships with everyone. I knew everyone, um, everyone knew me, and in fact, some people ended up going on to become Fulbright scholars, and we actually had one person who became the CEO of uh, Uber Pakistan. Oh, wow. That's the biggest thing for me, is that I did have an impact. Mm-hmm. But we're making an actual economic impact over there because all of our employees, we made sure that they were paid like 50% over what a typical person right. was making. And also, you know, they'd be supporting uncles, families, you know, grandparents. I actually think we probably were touching a few thousand people. And it was great. We'd have a good day. My partner would put on lunch for 300 people in the streets. It was really phenomenal. So that was the real pain for me, that we had to shut that down. But in terms of lessons learned, first of all, I found out that you have to be totally aligned, you know, in terms of your values with who you partner with, because sometimes success can change people. Mm-hmm. And I always thought about the problems of failure, not not of success. And and that was one thing that I, you know, I, I learned in the hard way. And secondly, you know, I really felt very close to my clients. I really felt like that's the driving force, especially in hedge funds, because I, I don't want to make this seem like I'm I'm some kind of a white knight or anything, but a lot of hedge funds are purely mercenary and they look at just bringing in assets right. to, for the sake of bringing in assets. In fact, a lot of hedge funds actually grow too big and their performance suffers, but they really don't care because they're getting bigger you know, fees. Yeah, yeah, much bigger fees. Right. So it, it really gave me a sense of, um, the, of the importance of clients and also the uh, the importance of helping people. It was, I think, one of the, well, it certainly was the only hedge fund in Pakistan uh, uh, of any kind of institutional quality, but I actually think it was one of the very few hedge funds that actually helped people. I mean, big firms, the biggest firms that everyone knows of, you know, the Bridgewaters, Point72s, all these people help their employees by helping them make money. Right. But it's not totally socially centered. If I had to say in my entire career what I was the most proud of, it was that aspect of the business.
0: My last question is, why PAVE?
1: Well, when I closed the hedge fund, I had a lot of offers to set up another one. Mm-hmm. I had the backers and, and I just didn't think it was the right time. I didn't realize how right I was because it was on the verge of central banks kind of getting involved with the financial markets to such an extent that it was very difficult for especially macro traders to discern trends that would normally occur because essentially there were artificial prices based off what was going on. The central banks were intervening mm-hmm. so, so heavily in the markets. Right. So what I did was I took a step back and I consulted. For some of the biggest names, I was still in touch with a lot of the best names. So instead mm-hmm. of actually going back to New York and working, I did it remotely, and I had a, a few people where I would act almost like a, a strategist for them. Mm-hmm. So I right. talked to, in a sense, the best CIOs in the business, right and I would give them advice based off my models, mm-hmm. and they could, they like that because I, I think a little bit differently. In fact, when we had the hedge fund, what made us so successful is uh, we were not correlated with anyone else because right. I, was, I was kind of getting out when people were getting in. It was just kind of the way I think around a year ago I started to see the end of central bank intervention either it got to the point where it was either gonna put so much money into the system that we would start getting inflation or it would be such that the central banks could actually remove themselves from the equation mm-hmm. because things were kind of normalize at some point sure so I started thinking about okay what could I do from this point on when I thought back in my career I've worked for for people who um, have been very successful but the entire business when I think about it or when I thought about it was to get very wealthy people wealthier right and I, I thought, is there some way that I could still do what I love and not have that be my motivation? Because that wouldn't be a motivation for me after all these years. Right. So I wanted to figure out some way that I could give back. Mm-hmm. I even thought about teaching, but I thought that didn't make any sense. This This could be a much broader audience. Mm-hmm. And then when the opportunity presented itself, I thought it's a perfect time, not only from the fact that it's gonna be a great trading environment going forward. right? But also with COVID, especially now, there's such a discrepancy between people who have and people who, who don't have. Mm-hmm. And I even see it to the point where there's gonna be a growing mass of people that just aren't gonna have the opportunities. So this is right. this for me is a perfect integration of what I would think is the best business opportunity, as well as the best social opportunity.
0: Well, I feel exactly the same way, and I couldn't wish for a better person to do it with.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, talking about my career, I mean, after 38 years, most people will be ready to hang it up, and I feel like the best is yet to come.
0: That's great to hear.
1: As we promised,
0: we're giving all of our listeners the opportunity to jump on an hour-long Zoom call with Peter. To sign up, all you have to do is subscribe to PAVE through our website, pavefinance.com, and follow the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. In roughly a week's time, we'll randomly select five people and send details via email, so make sure to watch out for that. Hopefully you find Peter's story as fascinating as I do and are looking forward to the chance to get to know him. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed our podcast, make sure to subscribe or follow and share Pave Insight with your friends and family. But most importantly, have a great rest of your day.